Hey, good morning, everybody. That's a great song, wasn't it? Let's give them another hand. Yeah, great message to it. And um, uh, so glad you're here. My name is Ben. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're just thrilled to have you. Thanks for making <clears throat> River Glen uh, part of your uh, weekend. Hey, I'm going to dive in. We got a, a, a question for you, and I think it's going to be divisive. All right, I think it's going to divide the crowd. The question is about the uh, snooze uh, button on the alarm clock. Yeah, is that the greatest invention? In the world, or do you think it's the worst invention? How many think it's the greatest invention in the world? Oh, yeah, okay. And uh, how many think it's the worst? It's, yeah, it's about divided, about uh, half and, and, and half. You know, for those of you that like to use it, you probably think it's the best invention. And if your spouse or roommate likes to use it, you probably think it's the worst invention. I remember back in college, I had a roommate that loved to use this news button. I mean, he would hit that thing over and over and over. We were roommates for two weeks. Yeah. He's buried out back somewhere behind the old dorm never been found since then. But snooze button is built on this myth, and the myth is this, that nine extra minutes of sleep is going to make all the difference, right? But have you ever, you know, have you ever heard of anybody, you know, sleeping that extra nine minutes, and they wake up, and they say, wow, I feel so much better. That button is awesome. No, you know, because we don't like you know, we don't like to wake up. We don't like alarm clocks. We're comfy in our bed. You know, we got our pillow. We got our, we got our blanket. And the alarm goes off. Beep, beep, beep. And it's just a rude awakening. And here's what I'm learning is that in my journey of following God, that sometimes he brings an awakening in my life, and it feels like a rude awakening. And they're not easy. And sometimes you're, you're, you're tempted to hit the snooze button, and you don't want to deal with it because it's uncomfortable, and it's uh, awkward. Well, last weekend we began this new series. It's called Finding Your Way Back to God. It's based on this great book uh, by Dave and John Ferguson. We're focusing on the story of the, the prodigal son in the New Testament, which is probably the most popular story, most famous story that Jesus ever told because many of us can uh, re- relate to it. The story about this, this young man who went away to a distant land and then he's got to find his way back. And the names are different, you know, maybe, or the circumstances are different. But, you know, many of us deep down can say, that story is my story. And we're learning that the story of the prodigal son is really the story of five awakenings that help us find our way back uh, to God. Five different wake-up calls, okay? And you know, these uh, awakenings are not like a one-time experience. You know, you're not one and done with these because after you begin following Jesus, all of us have a tendency to drift away, to fall or turn away from him from time uh, to time. And these five awakenings are part of an ongoing journey of following Jesus. And I'm just going to tell you in advance, awakening number two that we're going to talk about today is one where, you know, you're going to be tempted to go, you know, bam, you know, I'm going to hit the snooze button, bam, you know, I'm not going to deal with that right now, you know, uh, bam, that's too close for comfort because these awakenings can feel uncomfortable. Now, before we talk about uh, awakening number two, let's review a little bit. Awakening number one we talked about last week is awakening to longing, that, you know, deep inside, each one of us have a longing for uh, purpose and meaning and love. We've got this sense where we say, you know, there's got to be more. I'm not finding satisfaction. And so we go on this search to try and fulfill that longing. It leads us in different directions. Sometimes it can take us, you know, closer to God, but oftentimes it sends people away from God as they search and try to fill it on their uh, own. It reminds me of this new word for me. I just, I just discovered this word. It's in the book, and it's uh, the word rum springa. I don't know if you've heard this word before. I think it's actually a German word. It's kind of a fun word to say. Say that out loud with me, would you? Rum springa. Yeah. You know, they actually use this word in some Amish 
communities that describe a season when a young person goes and searches for fulfillment. Not all Amish communities, but some will give permission to teenagers like 16 years old to leave on the weekends and to go experiment and try to find fulfillment in the world in whatever the way they choose. Rumspringa means to run around, okay? And so, you know, these teenagers on the weekends, they can go and run around and, and sow their wild oats. And then they have to make a decision to be baptized in the local Amish church or to leave, you know, their community and their family behind and go and live in the uh, world. Now, as I look around the room here today, I don't really see very many Amish, you know, people here with us. But many of us, I think, would say, yeah, you know, I've taken a rumspringa or two, you know, in, in my life. Now, maybe we call it something else. Maybe we call it freshman year or, you know, trip to Las Vegas or maybe for you it was rumspring breaka, you know, or I don't know, maybe it was last nighta. And, uh, hey, good for you. You're here. You know, you're, you made it today. And, uh, you know, we're glad uh, that you're here. Maybe you call it a midlife crisis. But many of us have had a season in life where we kind of run around and uh, experiment. Some people even try to live a rumspringa throughout their life. And let me just ask you, how's that going for you? Because it's, it, it, it's short-sighted and, and it doesn't tend to work out, you know, very well. And other people will try and, you know, wake us up and they'll tell us, you know, you're heading in the wrong direction, but we don't listen to them. You know, we think everybody else is going in the wrong direction. Just to show you a little example of what I'm talking about, I want to show you a clip from, I, I mean, this is an Oscar-worthy movie. I don't know why it's never received a nomination, but this is some classic filmmaking with John Candy and Steve Martin. Take a look. Put your window down! You want something? Uh, probably drunk. You're going the wrong way! What? You're going the wrong way! He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Thank you. Thanks a lot. Terrific. Thank you. <laughs> what a moron. You're going to kill somebody! make them like that anymore, do they? That's some fine filmmaking uh, right there. But isn't that how we live sometimes? You know, we ignore the warnings of other people. We think, you know, everybody else going the wrong direction. We think we're going the right way, but we've got it all mixed up. And one of the reasons why we take a rumspringa and we head in the wrong direction is because we've got some flawed assumptions about life. For instance, maybe some of us have had flawed assumptions about relationships, and we think, you know, when we find the right person, they're going to make us happy. And so we search and we, we find someone. And when they don't, you know, make us happy, we think, well, I must have found the wrong right person. And some, some have had two or three or maybe five right persons because they have flawed assumptions about relationships. Some of us maybe have had flawed assumptions about sexuality. 
And we think, you know, when two consenting adults get together and sparks fly, it can only lead to good things. But maybe it left you hurt, empty, confused, or maybe flawed assumptions professionally, and you thought, you know, if I could just get that job, if I could just achieve that level of success, then I'd be somebody, and I would have respect. And so you went after it, and you got the education, and you got the job, but it hasn't brought you the fulfillment you thought it would, and there's this continual longing in us, there's got to be more. And it brings us to our, our, our second awakening today, uh, this week, awakening to regret. Because after you take a rumspringa, you know, after you allow flawed assumptions to lead you, you know, in a, in a, in a bad direction that you don't really want to go, you get there and you say, you know, I wish that I could start over. You know, maybe some of you are coming to a place in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s, or 50s, or 60s, or wherever, where you look back on your life, and the direction of your life has not brought you the sense of purpose and meaning and love that you thought it would, that you hoped it would, and that's exactly what happens in the story Jesus told about the prodigal son. When Jesus introduces us to, to this young man in Luke chapter 15, he seems confident that he knows how to make a great life, and he doesn't need his father, he doesn't need his past, he doesn't need his, his family. In fact, he makes this unbelievably bold request of, from, of his dad, and he says, he says, Dad, I want my inheritance you know, right now, which basically means I wish you were dead, because when you're dead, I get the inheritance, so why don't you just give me the inheritance, and you'll be dead to me. And then he takes this inheritance, and he, and he, just, he goes to a distant land. He goes to a, a party land, a rumspringa land of some kind. And there's this subtle reality in the story that I want to draw your attention to that maybe we haven't focused on before. This young man, he doesn't think he needs his father, doesn't think he needs his family. But let me ask you a few questions about him. Where did he get the clothes on his back? From his dad. Where did he get the belongings, you know, in his, in his bags? From his dad. Where'd he get the money in his pockets from his dad? And, you know, some of us go through life and we have this kind of attitude toward God that I don't need God. I'm not dependent on him. You know, I'm doing just fine without him. But you know what? You're not really independent of, of God. I mean, if you are earning a living, you're depending on the talent and the health <clears throat> that he's given you. You know, if you're in sales and you're, you know, hitting your marks and you're cutting deals because of your winsome personality, that's a personality, that winsome personality that God gave you. He knit that together for you in your mother's womb. In fact, every moment, even just now, you know, as, as you take a breath, that's a gift from God. It's all from God. You've never taken a breath that you've provided for yourself. And if you think you've made it completely on your own, you just haven't looked closely enough because all of us, for all of us, God's been there. And, you know, we've depended on him in ways that maybe we've taken for granted every uh, day. But the son of the story that Jesus told, he didn't really see it that way. He's young and he's unaware of how much his father has done for him. And so he went looking for love in a distant land. And he squandered and he just blows the inheritance on wild living and parties. He spends it on prostitutes and he ends up broke and hopeless and penniless. It's a heartbreaking situation. And, and that's where we pick it up in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 14. Jesus says, <clears throat> after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be what? In need. And so he went and hired himself out to be a citizen of that country, who, uh, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He was so hungry, 
he decides, you know, I'd like to eat that pig's meal, you know. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen what pigs eat. Here's a picture. They call it pig slop. And I, I don't know about you, but I cannot imagine being so hungry that that looks good, you know. Um, you know, you know things are bad when you look at that and you think, I could just add salt to that and I could eat that for dinner. I mean, I get nauseous just, just looking at, at, at that. And so this guy is down. He's at rock bottom. You ever been there in your life? Jesus continues, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Now there's two phrases here that I think we really need to understand in order to recognize the second awakening in our life. First of all, when he came to his senses, and then the second one, I will set out and go back to my father. Let's start with that first phrase, when he came to his senses, because this is a provocative statement, just filled with meaning. And here's what I think Jesus means when he says he came to his senses. When the prodigal son feeds the pigs and, and he starts to hunger for what the pigs ate, he begins to think about the true condition and direction of his life. And here's a great question for you to ask yourself. Where is my future headed You know, if I don't change the patterns of my past? Just extend your life out right now. Five years out, 10 years out. Where's your future headed? If you don't change the patterns of your past, can, you, can, can I anticipate a brighter future? Can I anticipate you know, a, a, a better future? If I just keep going down this road and I just keep doing the things that landed me in the pig pen. And I think he says, when he, he says, I've got to look deeper in my life than I've ever looked before. I've got to pay attention to things. I've never paid attention before. And I think when he says, when it says he came to his senses, it concludes the thought, maybe for the first time, that my life could be better. And he starts imagining what it would be like. He thinks to himself, how many of my father's you know, hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. What if, what if I go back to my dad? What if he gives me a job as one of his hired hands? You know, what if I have three meals a day? What if I have a roof over my head? That'd be a lot better than, than what I have now. You know, when you talk to just about anybody that's found their way back to God, they will almost always point back to a season in their life and they will describe it for, for you in, in high definition, a time when they felt broken. And they basically said, I finally came to my senses. And they'll tell you about a time when guilt or boredom or fear or addiction or divorce or grief or illness just started to grip their lives and they started reflecting on their life saying, I don't want my future to be like my past. I don't want to go on living like this anymore. And so after weighing his options and after you know, waking up, having a wake-up call, so to speak, the prodigal son comes to his senses and he gets this new vision for his life and he starts to make this defining decision and he climbs out of the pig pen and he uh, washes himself off and he starts heading in the direction of his father. And so I've got a big idea for you today, and it's got two parts, and if you're taking notes, I hope you'll write this down. Here's the first part. The second awakening begins when we come to our senses. That's how it begins, when we come to our senses. And some of us here today, you know, we just need to wake up and come to our senses. Some of us need to take a hard look at our life and where we're headed in the future unless some things change. And we need to embrace this verse from the Old Testament in Isaiah 53 that says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have, have gone astray. All of us have gone in our own direction. You know what is some of the, two of the most powerful words 
that we can ever say in a community like River Glen? These two words right here. Me too. Yeah. Not like, hey, how you doing? I'm fine. Me too. Not like that. Or, you know, how you doing? Well, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm doing great. Business is booming. Kids are overachieving. Me too. Not like that either. Because when you were in a distant land, when, you know, you were partying, when you were taking a rum spring, when you allowed flawed assumptions to lead you in a, a, a bad direction, you didn't really need somebody to come along and point a finger and say, you need. You needed somebody to come along and say, me too. You know, I've been there too. And I'll just tell you, I can personally identify with the story of the prodigal son just like you. You know, when I read this this story, I can say, me too. I want to read to you a statement. This was actually written by an author named John Wartburg. And at the end of it, if you can identify with what he's saying, I want you to say these words together at the end. Me too. Here's what he says. I'm a mess on my own. I'm powerless over my ego, and my life is unmanageable, and I need God. Left to myself, I will waste my one and only life in stupid ways. I will damage and neglect relationships. I will make idols of success and my reputation. I will dishonor my sexuality. I will use words which I'm supposed to use for God to deceive people. I will use people for my own advancement when I'm supposed to serve the church. I will serve myself instead of serving others, instead of serving you. Greed will rule my wallet. Resentments will fill my heart in a nanosecond. Pride will govern my choices and ego will dominate my life. Left to myself, I will spend a pathetic existence trying to polish my outer image and hide so that no one can see what an egocentric sinner I am on the inside. And if successful in this, I will go to my grave, a respectable fraud. I'm a mess and I need God. And all the people said, me too, me too. You see, the people who don't find their way uh, to God, those are the ones who say, oh, I'm fine. You know, everything's fine. I'm just going to hit the snooze button. I'm not going to deal with this right now. Just delay, delay, delay. But everything changes for the prodigal son when he comes to his senses. And some of you, you know, you're right there today. Your heavenly father is saying, come home. You know, my arms are, are wide open uh, to you. There's a place for you here. Look at your life. Look where your rum springa and your flawed assumptions have taken you. You can start over. Step out in my power and head in a new direction. This brings us to the second part of of our big idea, part two. The second awakening culminates with our journey back home to God. And so it begins when we come to our senses, and it culminates when we head home. Uh, back to our father. Because, you know, a lot of people wake up with regret. A lot of people wake up with enormously heavy regret. Regret that just feels like chains all over you. But what they haven't done is taken the second step to turn around and go home. I mean, they feel bad about it, but they haven't done anything about it. I've heard this described this way as the sorry cycle. And this is where we recognize that we've, you know, gotten off track, we've headed in a bad direction, we come to our senses, we feel regret, but what we do is we just go back and forth between regret and longing and regret and and longing. And some of us have stayed stuck in the sorry cycle for years and years. And I'll tell you, some of the most miserable people in the world, you know, are people who have wandered from God and come to their senses and feel regret, okay? but they don't have the courage. 
or they don't have the humility to say what the prodigal son said, I will go back to my father and return home. Now, the word for this in scripture is the word repentance. And, uh, you know, maybe depending on your background, uh, that word may carry some baggage for you. It's not viewed very positively in our culture. Maybe you think of some angry protesters, you know, holding a sign and yelling, repent. Or maybe you picture a guy, you know, driving around in his car in a neighborhood. He's got a speaker on his roof, just blasting out the words, repent, you sinners. We tend to associate this word with anger and guilt and coercion, but you know, in the original language of the Bible, it's a positive, repentance is a repositive, life-giving word. A word actually means to change my mind and take the first step in a new direction. Think of it this way, the prodigal son, right, he walks away from home, he goes to a distant land, and he just squanders his inheritance, he blows all of his money, and he's, he's penniless, he's hopeless, and he comes to his senses, and what does he do? He does a 180, and he returns to his father, and he decides to go back home. He changed his mind. That's repentance. And for awakening number two to happen in our lives, for us to really start over, we've got to come to a defining moment in our lives where we head in a new direction, and we say, Father, I will. Do you notice the prodigal son made that statement? I will go back to my father. There must be an I will spirit And so if you're serious about finding your way back to God, we need one of those clear, high-definition moments where you turn and you leave something behind. Maybe it's a relationship that's dishonoring God. Maybe it's a living arrangement dishonoring to Him, and you turn and head in a new direction. Maybe it's a phone number that you need to delete. Maybe it's some accountability software that you need on your computer or devices. You come to your senses and you close the door to the past and you say, Jesus, I'm coming in your direction. I'm heading in your direction. And I can just tell you from my experience as a pastor, you know, people don't just, you know, uh, don't just, you know, gradually you know, head in a new direction. There needs to be a defining moment. There needs to be an I will spirit. There needs to be a turning back to God. And for many people, you know, that moment of of turning around and drawing a line in the sand and putting a stake in the ground, for many people, that moment is baptism. And in baptism, we're saying, God, I'm coming home to you. And uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to do just that in a couple weeks. In two weeks, we're going to have baptisms in our our weekend uh, service. And if you're interested, just fill out the card in your program. Put that in the offering bag later on. And when you make that choice to be baptized, okay, you know, it doesn't mean you're never going to, you know, wander away again. doesn't mean that you've got it all figured out. It means you're going home. To be with God and home is where you intend to stay. And so if God is nudging you, you know, If God's tugging on you, don't hit the snooze bar. Don't hit the snooze button because today might be God's wake-up call for you to go ahead and get baptized. Or maybe today is is your wake-up call to keep attending church or to join a a, a small group. Or here's another wake-up call. Last week we gave you a 30-day prayer challenge and there's actually a, a good section in the back of the book that gives you daily instructions to follow that will help you use prayer to get closer to God through making consistent prayer part of your life. And this week, we want to challenge every person to say this prayer every day. God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. Awaken in me the possibility that you and I could start over again. 
God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. Awaken in me the possibility that you and I could start over again. Would you repeat this uh, phrase by phrase after me? Ready? God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. Awaken in me the possibility that you and I could start over again. I want you to hear the story of a guy from River Glen who drifted away and found his way back and has started over. Take a look at the screen. Hello guys, uh, this is Dre and I've been coming to River Glen for over a year now and they've asked me to share my story with you guys. I was very blessed and very fortunate to grow up in a wonderful, godly home. Had an awesome mother and father, and from an early age, we got involved in our local church there. And, you know, we were there Sunday and Wednesday. And I had a, a mother um, who, um, who really prayed for me on a regular basis. I felt God's call on my life at, a, at, a, at an early age, but I began to resist the call and really began to resist uh, Him. Uh, I thought that, that God wanted to control my life and you know I was young and I wanted to have a lot of fun and, and I felt like he was going to keep me from having the, the life that I really wanted and so I kind of ran and resisted and I've come to realize that uh, there's a way that seems right to man but the end is death and it's God's way that will bring life. So I surrendered to him and surrendered to his call. and. I went to school and got the education, and after when I graduated from college, I went into the full-time ministry and spent uh, 26 years in the full-time ministry. Started a church and a Christian school in my home, and um, had things were going really great. And then all of a sudden, after a 24-year um, marriage, uh, we went through a divorce, and it was very hard. It was very difficult, um, and. What really led to the divorce was uh, the woman I was married to. She was a wonderful woman, but she never really embraced ministry, never really wanted to embrace the life of a pastor's wife, uh, the day-to-day -day ministry, and it really took its toll. And on the ministry, on our marriage, on our relationships, after 24 years, we got a divorce. And I found myself on a journey that I had never been before. And on this journey, uh, I, was, I was hurt. Uh, I, was, I was angry, I was bitter, and I began to find myself pulling away from God and pulling away from the things of God. And I began to hang out and, uh, with people that didn't want anything to do with God. Uh, I began to do the things that I did when I was running from God in the very beginning and felt myself um, involved in relationships that was not pleasing to God, and I became discouraged, and I had to... Uh, uh, a huge emptiness in me and so I left the very foundation that I had in God and my relationship with God and I left that that bitterness and anger and resentment and, and hurt and pain pulled me away from God and I was involved in, uh, in the in, as we'd say the party scene the bar scene and just really begin to really get away from God and uh, but the, whole, the, the thing that really began to sh speak to my heart was even though I was running away from God and I was doing things that was not pleasing to God and doing things I know that was not good for my relationship with Him, He never left me. 
He never forsake me. I could remember driving back uh, uh, from a bar, closing a bar down, and I could hear God tug on my heart, and I'd begin to talk with him. And uh, I know what King David said. When King David said, if I would ascend to the very pits of hell, God will follow me. And on this journey that I was running from God, uh, I felt his presence the whole time. And it just really blew me away that God would still stay with me even though I was angry. And times I was angry at Him and I was upset and I was bitter and I had a lot of unforgiveness in my heart. He never left me. And it was through that I began to realize, man, God really loves me and He really cares for me and He really has an incredible plan for my life. And I caught myself begin to pull away from these relationships and pull away uh, from things that was hindering my walk. And I began to pick my Bible up for the very first time and begin to read it. And so what was awesome is as I began to cry out to God and really begin to say, okay, God, uh, there's more to this life. I know it, but I, I, I want to get back. So on the first Sunday uh, in January 2015, I came here and I fell in love with it. Uh, the music was incredible, uh, the people, the greeters, um, there was just a beautiful presence there, a beautiful spirit here in the teaching. It was what I needed. And then uh, after about six months, the, I felt the, the Holy Spirit speak to my heart and says, you know what, it's time for you to quit coming and taking up a, a seat and it's time for you to begin to serve. And uh, it's uh, through that that uh, I began to develop a relationship with a wonderful woman here named Cheryl and she had been coming to this ministry for 16 years and she's involved in the ministry and she works in the nursery department, does a wonderful job and through that relationship we begin to date and begin to talk and long story short, uh, on November 21st of this year, we got married. Uh, she's a wonderful, wonderful woman uh, who I love dearly. I thank God that he's brought her to my life. And uh, we both love it here at River Glen. We uh, love serving. We love giving. And it's just been, uh, it's been an incredible adventure, incredible journey that I've been on. And it's awesome uh, to be back with God again and, and to feel his presence stronger like I've never felt before and to begin to see my faith grow. And, you know, we talk a lot, why should we have faith? Well, the most important thing is the Scripture tells us that without faith, we cannot please God. It's our faith in Him. It's our trust in Him, knowing that we may not understand the whole situation, circumstances. We may not know how to fix it, but we know He does, and we trust Him. And it's our faith in Him uh, that pleases Him, and it's our, also our faith that causes us to become a witness for the people that we come in contact on a regular basis. No matter where you're at right now, what you've done, where you've been, no matter how your past is, your past is your past. When you come to God, it's a clean slate. He's going to receive you with open arms. He's going to love you. He's going to uh, 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 take care of you. And he's going to show you uh, the real meaning of life. So I encourage you, give God a chance. Give him a shot because he's real and he loves you like no one else. You know, I think the hope that uh, Dre's story brings is we don't have to just keep it in the snooze button. And we don't have to stay stuck in the story cycle. You know, we can experience a second awakening that leads us home. You can start over. God will welcome you back. God will satisfy your longing for meaning and purpose and love. <clears throat> and that's why each week we celebrate communion. Communion is kind of like a wake-up call, and it helps us to stay on track by remembering Jesus didn't have to, but he 
voluntarily, he went to that cross to die as a sacrifice on our behalf and then came back three days later so that you and I, so that we could find our way home, so that we could find our way back to God now and, and forever. And, and the bread uh, uh, that we're going to eat represents his body. The juice represents his blood on the cross. In a moment, the servers are going to come forward. They're going to pass the trays. Our communion's open to anyone who follows Jesus. I do want to ask you that uh, when you take the double cup, hold it, okay? And we're going to take it together later on in the service. And so as the tray comes by you, take the double cup and just hold on to it. But I hope that you're realizing that the story of the prodigal son, it's your story, it's my story, it's our story. I want to read to you a retelling of the prodigal son story by uh, a fantastic author, Philip uh, Yancey. And as you hear this story, I want you to hear an invitation from God himself. God inviting you to wake up and come home. Because today can be the day you come to your senses. Today can be the day that you come home. Her name was Krista. And she grew up on a small cherry farm in Traverse City, Michigan. She was a wild child who dismissed her parents as old-fashioned because of how they responded to her piercings and tattoos. One night, Krista and her parents had a fight, a huge fight. At the end of it, she slammed the door and said, I hate you, and then acted on a plan she'd been rehearsing for months in her mind. She ran away, all the way to the big city of Detroit. Within a few hours of arriving in Detroit, she met a man who seemed warm and nice. He drove the most expensive car she'd ever seen, and he was willing to take her in. This nice man taught her a few things that would make her valuable on the streets. And because Krista was young, she brought in top dollar for her services. But as time went on and as she got a little older, she wasn't bringing in top dollar anymore. And so she was thrown out on the street with no money and a drug habit to support. The blood will rise underneath my hands, and the wind will rise up to fill my sails. So you can doubt, and you can hate, <clears throat> but I know no matter One night she thought back to those sunny spring days when she would be lying beneath the cherry trees, realizing that renting her body on the streets of Detroit was no way to live. She decided that she would head north, maybe to Canada, and, and start over. On her way north, she figured she'd try something that she thought had no chance of actually working. She mustered up enough courage to give her parents a call. No one answered, but she left a message telling them she was going to be passing through Traverse City on her way to Canada. And if they wanted to see her, she'd be at the bus station around midnight. After hanging up, she thought leaving the message was a stupid thing to do because 
Odds are they were happier with, with her gone. As the bus headed north, she could see the sign saying the bus was getting closer to Traverse City. She ran through the possible scenarios in her mind. Nobody, nobody there to meet her. Someone there, but only to shame her and condemn her. Finally, the bus arrived in Traverse City, and she heard the bus driver say, 15 minutes at this stop. 15 minutes. Still far away from where I belong, but it's always darkest before the dawn, so you can doubt, you can hate, <clears throat> but I All her mental rehearsing didn't prepare her for what she found when she stepped off the bus. At midnight in this small town bus depot, she found dozens of familiar faces belonging to aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandparents all wearing silly party hats. A huge banner hanging from the walls said, welcome home, Krista. Her dad broke through the crowd and ran up to her. And as she tried to explain herself, he wrapped his arms around her, making it clear that all he really cared about was that his daughter was home. I'm coming. 